This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, y'all. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Joan Tracy Zant, and today on the show, Bad Bunny puts Puerto Rican politics on the world stage. Plus, the marriage of black and Jewish foods and what brings them together. All right, here's the show. Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm your guest host, Tracy Hunt. The other day, I was listening to the new Bad Bunny album, Un Verano Senti. Hey, Titi me preguntó si tengo mucha novia. And I noticed something kind of amazing. The album only just came out in May, but every song had been streamed hundreds of millions of times. If you do that math, the world has collectively listened to Bad Bunny for 733 years in the past four months alone. It's official. The biggest artist in the world right now comes from Puerto Rico. And when you dig into his music and what he stands for, the island is very close to his heart. Bad Bunny is now on a world tour, but before he left home, he threw three nights of sold-out parties for his people. He also used those nights to bring up some of the biggest political issues facing Puerto Ricans. Gentrification, power outages, and women and trans rights. He does whatever he wants. <laughs> That's Yarimar Bonilla, a political anthropologist from Puerto Rico. But I think in a place that doesn't have sovereignty, in a place that can't choose its destiny, that can't do what it wants, having sovereignty, bodily autonomy, uh, the right to speak the language that you want, the right to like curse out who you want, that's not nothing. That is a politics. Today, Yarimar and I are digging into Bad Bunny's Puerto Rico, looking at what he stands for and what he wants for the island. And bear with me in this conversation, my Spanish is a work in progress. So first thing, I want to talk about these three nights of parties that Mr. Bad Bunny had in Puerto Rico. What were these parties exactly? Like what was, you know, what did that, what, what did he do? First of all, a party is the right. Uh, he would be happy that you described it as a party because mm-hmm. he said many times this is not a concert. Party. <laughs> and so I think what he, what he wanted and the way people felt it was like a, a fiesta nacional, a kind of popular national gathering. Mm-hmm. So there was a venue that was sold out for three nights, but there were also public plazas where, you know, what was happening in the venue was uh, presented on light on large screens. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also at all sorts of bars and chinchorros, as we call it. Uh, p- people just had the TVs mm-hmm. uh, tuned in because the concert itself was all transmitted live on uh, Puerto Rican television. And so he said he wanted to throw a big party and for everyone in Puerto Rico to be able to attend. Yeah, and, and what moments kind of stood out for you? 
I think um, just the very beginning, just like when it began, the way he walked out uh, and just, you know, declared, here I am. Within the first five minutes, there were so many bleeps <laughs> because, you know, Bad Bunny songs, they have a lot of curse words and a lot of sexual references. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... I think there was a kind of immediate like, oh, my God, this is happening. This is on, on right. TV, on like very, what is usually very conservative, you know, uh, mainstream local television. Mm-hmm. Suddenly there were all these curse words, uh, but also all this vernacular, mm-hmm. you know, just the way people speak in, in, in everyday language. And there were all these different, you know, racialized bodies uh, and also different representations of femininity and masculinity. And the music is also a music I think even though Bad Bunny is the number one global streaming mm-hmm. musical artist there's still people in Puerto Rico who clutch their pearls at <laughs> reggaeton like it, it's still a, a kind of not the mainstream music mm-hmm. and not what you're used to seeing on TV I know that during the show he said my dream is that all those who are present here who have the genuine desire to live forever in Puerto Rico can achieve it And that seems like such a simple thing to want. Why has that dream become so unreachable for so many Puerto Ricans? I I, I agree with you. It seems so simple, and yet it is so out of reach for so many of his generation Mm -hmm. who feel like they're with the debt crisis and everything, they can't find jobs, or they feel like in order to have a fulfilling career, you know, and to to achieve what they want professionally, they have to leave Mm -hmm. or to raise their families. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there is a crisis of schools in Puerto Rico. Just today I saw the headlines, like, some mayors want to take over the schools because because the, the local government has just abandoned mm. the schools. And there are schools that have been closed for over two years because they were affected by earthquakes and they weren't repaired mm. and then they were closed during COVID. And so just giving your kids a, a, a education. So I think a lot of people feel like they have to choose between um, their career, their family, and living where they want to live and being with yeah, their people. Yeah. And so while Puerto Ricans feel like they can't make their lives there, the government is not working on making Puerto Rico more livable for residents, but instead is trying to attract foreigners to come, mm-hmm. uh, particularly folks from the U.S. Who, who then don't have to pay taxes when they move to Puerto Rico. And many of these folks are incredibly wealthy, and so they don't they don't need a public education system. Mm-hmm. They don't need public hospitals, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And so that that's the kind of folks that are being attracted to a place where there is a decreasing public services and decreasing infrastructure every day. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because people from mainland U.S. have been coming to Puerto Rico claiming these beaches are private property when they build their condos on the beach. And Puerto Ricans have been holding protests on the beaches. They even took away construction materials from one beach after a judge declared that construction illegal. And just to say the idea of even trying to own a beach just feels like a very American sentiment. Like, how do you own ocean and sand? But whatever. <laughs> so how are Puerto Ricans resisting attempts to create 
what you call in your column, uh, Puerto Rico without Puerto Ricans. Yeah, that phrase of, of Puerto Rico without Puerto Ricans, it's a, a phrase that came from, I don't know if you remember, in 2019 uh. when uh, people marched in the streets to get rid of the governor. Mm-hmm. There was a leaked chat between the governor and his friends, and one of the folks on the chat, he said, oh, I've seen the future, and it's beautiful. There are no Puerto Ricans. So, <sighs> and, and he's, he's never been held accountable for that. So Wait, we the governor said that or means. when the governor's friends? One of his um, staff members, you know, <laughs> someone that was someone working, who's working with for the, the Puerto gov- Rican government, right, yeah, yeah uh, said that. And so, you know, people have associated that with the government's efforts to bring, you know, non-Puerto Ricans to live in Puerto mm-hmm. Rico. Like, that's the future that they imagine. If you think about a lot of the fantasies, when you look at travel brochures, it's always empty mm-hmm. beaches. It, you know, it's always tapping into this colonial mentality mm-hmm. of, like, come and conquer this untouched land, yeah, you yeah. know? And Puerto Rican beaches aren't empty. They're full no. of people <laughs> with radios, with food, <laughs> with big, you know, big pots of rice and beans. Like, uh, as Puerto Rico gets marketed more and more to outsiders, there's an attempt to to turn Puerto Rico into that tourist fantasy Mm -hmm. of the untouched private beach, you know, the secluded beach. That's what people want. uh, want, And when they arrive, they can't find it. (laughs) They find the beaches full of Puerto Ricans. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So um, we can look at his lyrics. And on his song, El Apagón, he raps saying... Um, damn it, another blackout. Let's go to the bleachers and light up a blunt before I give people a slap. Maldita sea, otro apagón. Vamos pa los bleachers a prender un blunt. Antes que a people le un bofetón. Puerto Rico Puerto Rico is the only place where he has to travel and set up a gazillion generators to be able to have his show because he can't trust the electric company. Mm-hmm. And so the inability to have constant power affects everyone, including him, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think, you know, he talks to us like he's part of our community. So people would be a nickname uh, for Pedro Pierluisi, who's the governor. And so he's kind of like, let me go smoke a blunt and chill out so I don't, you know, go wild on this dude. (laughs) You know, reggaeton is historically hyper-masculine, but in Bad Bunny, we have an artist who paints his nails. You know, he, he dressed in drag for his music video, Yo Perio Sola. Is he doing something radical in Puerto Rico? I, yes. I, I think now we've gotten our heads around it. It's been a couple of years. You know, it is possible for him to do all this gender bending because at the end of the day, he is a straight, light-skinned male, yeah. you know. And he has talked about it and he has recognized and has taken on more of an ally mm-hmm. role, you know. And, and, and his concert in Puerto Rico, he was very purposeful about bringing all uh, female artists and trans artists mm-hmm. uh, on stage with him in addition to bringing the old school reggaeton. dudes as well um but i think he's the right person at the right time Mm -hmm. arriving with this uh anti-sexist message Mm -hmm. uh he says that machismo is just old-fashioned it's just like embarrassing (laughs) he's like oh that's just like pathetic and sad for you you know come on now The, the thing is that he doesn't do it in a kind of didactic scoldy kind of way he's just like oh that's so passe to be like 
straight and boring and you know <laughs> like and why would you why would you limit your outfit choices to the men's department that's just sad <laughs> you know yeah I, yeah he has made um trans issues like a big part of his platform as you know he uh, performed on the tonight show with Jimmy Fallon and he wore a shirt that read Mataron a Alexa no un hombre con falda which in English means they killed Alexa not a man in a skirt why do you think this issue in particular has been so important to him well, I think it's important in Puerto Rico. You know, we there was mm-hmm. a crisis of femicides that was declared, and there's there has been also a crisis of trans violence, and and mm-hmm. you know a, a real push for people to to recognize that. You know, and mm-hmm. and then in the case that he referenced at the Jimmy Fallon show, the person who was killed self-identified as a trans woman, but the police described them when they were killed as a man wearing women's clothing. And so mm. a lot of people really pushed back on that. And so it was really mm. lovely for him to say, no, she was, you know, she wasn't a man in women's clothing. She was a woman. Her name was Alexa. And I think it has, it has resonated with a lot of young people, both queer, but also straight people who feel constrained by the conservatism of Puerto Rican society. The power structure in Puerto Rico has traditionally been a straight and, and light-skinned and conservative, you know. It's a time of, of transformation in Puerto Rico, along with the political transformations and the recovery from all our disasters. Mm-hmm. There is also these identitarian struggles that are happening, and I think he speaks to all of that. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about machismo earlier, um, and, you know, as much as he uses his platform to talk about progressive politics, you know, he's at the same time still kind of engaging in some toxic masculinity, like his song Soy Pior, um, where he sings, once again, bad translation, I have the white girl that gives me lap dances, the rocker girl who I stick it in with my pants, the dark girl, the blonde girls, the models, da-da-da-da-da. Can he, like, embody the traditional machismo of reggaeton and push those boundaries? Like, can he authentically do both? So I think... The Soy Peor, that was one of his first hits. Uh, and he says he's evolved, whatever. But if you look at the current album, yeah. I'm just like, let's talk current about the album, current right? album. On the current album, he has the song about Andrea. Cuatro de la mañana y Andrea which is like an, an amazing song about what it's like to be a beautiful young woman in Puerto Rico constantly harassed who just wants to live her life, right. you know? Uh, it's such a... A, a song from a female perspective that's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, and you also have a song like Jonas Celoso, where he says, I'm not a jealous type, but who the hell are you talking to over there? <laughs> Who's that? He goes back and forth. He's like, I'm not jealous, but who's yeah. that? I don't want to be machista. Uh, and he says, like, bofetón para mí. Like, I'm just going to slap myself. Right. <laughs> you get the sense of someone who's like, this is toxic masculinity and I don't want to do it. Yeah. You know, so he's kind of like dealing with those feelings. I do think that his songs center women's pleasure, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not just about women being objects of male pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, there is definitely a sexualization of women mm-hmm. and, of, and a celebration still of, you know, traditional femininity also, mm-hmm. you know, it's like 
your 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 beautiful big butt is like <laughs> you know what all the songs about women is never about how smart they are. <laughs> never, <laughs> never. Well, we don't write except, about we don't write songs about yeah. smart girls. No, no one does. Well, except Andrea. Andre, Andrea, he says she's smart like a Tesla. Okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but mostly it's about like how beautiful mm-hmm. and how great she is at at uh, oral sex and things like that. You know. <laughs> Sorry, NPR listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so he challenges uh, machismo while celebrating promiscuity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so you know, I was um, talking to a friend about the fact that you know, among Puerto Ricans, everybody call him, calls him Benito. And I and I was saying, you know, she was like, "Well, that's his name," and I was like, "Yeah, but it, it sounds like you're talking about your little cousin." <laughs> like <laughs> whenever you say Benito, is like you know your little knucklehead cousin down the street. And I feel like that's part of that like relation, like you know that people feel like warmly enough that he's not bad bunny necessarily. He's Benito, and he does feel like a cousin. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I had a friend who who said, you know, I just feel I feel like he's just that cousin who made it big and doesn't have time to answer your text anymore <laughs> but you're not mad because you know he's busy right. <laughs> you know? I love that I love that I think a lot of us we feel that familiarity partly because we know his history and we feel we feel like we know him mm-hmm. like people people say to me they say oh you're a big bad you're a big fan of bad bunny I'm like it's not that I'm a fan it's that I just love him <laughs> I, just, I just care I just wish the best you for just, him yeah <laughs> you yeah know? yeah and, and we love how he represents us, how he's always so proud to be Puerto Rican. We love how he always speaks in Spanish without any embarrassment. Mm-hmm. And when he's asked about it, his his responses are so refreshing because he says, you know, gringo artists have done this forever. They travel the world and, and speak in English wherever they're interviewed. Yeah. So I travel the world and speak in Spanish right. wherever I'm interviewed. And it's like, oh, you know, he, like, he makes it seem yeah. so so simple. Or sing about different things. Like he's still singing about, you know, going shopping at the local mall in Puerto Rico or going to the local beach mm-hmm. and going to the west side of the island. Um, his lyrics are so rooted in Puerto Rican daily life, and yet they resonate with the world. I think precisely because they're so authentic to a specific experience. Mm-hmm. People seem to like it, even if they're not from Puerto Rico. Yeah. <laughs> Yadimai, thank you so much. This is such a great conversation. I'm so glad that we got to chat. Thank you. Anytime. Yadimar Bunia is a political anthropologist and the director of the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're exploring kosher soul, the marriage of Black and Jewish foods and what unites them. We'll be right back. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. uh, But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. 
Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. All I want to do right now is sit on a beach in Barbados and eat a fried flying fish sandwich. If there's a greater joy to be had in this world, I haven't met it. This is my favorite thing to do when I visit my family in Barbados, and it's not an experience easily replicated anywhere else. First of all, it has to be made by this one lady who sets up her cart at the beach. She fries the fish to order and then tops it with a vinegary green cabbage and onion salad, pepper sauce, mayo, and ketchup. And although flying fish is abundant in Caribbean waters, it's mostly only eaten by Bayesians, and you're not going to find it in most grocery stores up here in New York City. It's sometimes frustrating how food is fixed in a location, a memory, an experience not easily reached. But food also ties you to your history, your heritage, and your family. We are what we eat after all. My next guest, Michael W. Twitty, has deeply researched his food histories and wants us to think more about our own. His latest book is called Kosher Soul. Kosher Soul is about my journey in the world of Jewish peoplehood, but it's also about the food cultures of the African Atlantic and Jewish diasporas in conversation with each other. I talked to Michael about how survival, care, and resistance are baked into food, and why sharing our knowledge of foods with one another is so important. So I think a lot of people would look at your recipes and call what you do like fusion, like Black Jewish fusion food, but you don't seem to like that word. You wrote, sometimes two food traditions have nothing to say to each other. Other times they cannot shut up as they make love. What do you think Black food and Jewish food have to say to each other? A lot. It's a lot about migration and exile. I think there's a tendency to think of Jewish as one thing and Black as another thing. And many people in the Jewish diaspora, their relationship with the Americas was negotiated and navigated by the communities of African descent. To be Jewish is constant negotiation with the place we're from to the place we're going. Mm. And to be African-American, to be African-Atlantic is a very similar thing. So if you consider the fact that these two diasporas have been in many of the same places at the same time, Mm. how could they not cook together? How could they not eat together? How could they not have the same ingredients and some of the same leanings and troubles and understandings. Mm -hmm. So unraveling all of that is what Culture Soul really is centered in. I mean, so personally for you, how have you brought them together? It's the smells. Mm -hmm. It's the mortar and pestle. There's the hot comb positioned like a mezuzah, which is what we put on our doors, that my mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother had. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's encouraging that energy of the cooks that came before me, whether I knew them or not to be in that space and cook with me. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm from Barbados, and I'm and I'm thinking about um, something called cuckoo, mm-hmm. which is like fufu, right, 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 right. <laughs> kind of the same idea. And most people make it with just this thin, long paddle-looking thing mm-hmm. to like whip it up and everything. And when you were talking in your book about like how. Uh, like having a sacred kitchen and the things in your kitchen, like, you know, being sacred. I kept thinking of like the cuckoo stick because mm-hmm. it feels like if you have one in your home that identifies you as a Bayesian home. I have a I have a banku stick, which is the same thing. Oh, okay. I have to look that up. And by the way, there were Jews who came in refuge, but also for opportunity, places yeah, where yeah. enslavement was running the show. And mm-hmm. part of the, the Jewish food of Curacao, Lo and behold, it's cuckoo and fungi. Oh, wow. If you want to imbue your kitchen with sacredness or your cuckoo stick or your waffle maker with sacredness, like how would you do that? You know, when I have the hot comb in the, in the kitchen, like a, I hung up like a mezuzah, the kitchen was the place where, you know, our, our matriarchs did, our, did their hair. It's the pictures of the ancestors. Yeah. I have an Asafo flag in my kitchen from Ghana where... Mm-hmm. It, it depicts like banku and fufu in the market, but also it's where my mother's recipe is preserved in her hand mm. and where, you know, I teach the younger generation things that I learned. It's a meaning, it's import, it's symbolism. Yeah. You know, um, Jewish food does have a lot of rules. You write like part of that comes from a desire to be pure and to connect to food traditions that have been passed down for generations. But like, there's obviously a tension when it comes to introducing new kinds of food into the Jewish cookbook, so to say, basically how you end up with like kosher jerk chicken. Um, what is a rule that you follow with conviction? Well, I mean, there's 613, so I guess I have a lot I have a lot to follow with conviction. 613? If you told me like 100, I would have been like, oh, okay, yeah, that's, that's 613 blowing my mind a little bit. And it's 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 all well, it's all the misvotings, all the commandments that are kind of like holistically linked. Jewish peoplehood isn't really centered in the idea that we all all of us follow the rules all the time. Mm-hmm. It's more centered in the idea that we understand that there are rules. Yeah. But um, <laughs> for me, like Passover, I guess I'm Machmir of the Machmir on Passover. I'm like, no joke. I foil down my counters and cover them with plastic and. <laughs> Blowtorch. Wait, what are you blowtorching? You blowtorch this the stove in the sink. You have to get you have to get rid of every single possible crumb of bread wow. or leavened anything mm-hmm. before you can use that kitchen for pesa. Mm, mm. I'm telling you, the feeling of coming down the stairs to see your gleaming kitchen before it gets completely wrecked. <laughs> making making dinner for three days the morning before Passover is the most satisfying thing you'll have. Right. I mean, it's it's like the Jewish equivalent of like the Christmas tree on Christmas uh-huh. morning. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's coming downstairs and saying, "Oh my gosh, how beautiful, how clean my kitchen looks." The Jewish Christmas tree is a beautiful, clean kitchen. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm glad you brought up um, Passover because my next question is about the Seder plate. And you write like this really beautiful description of the kosher soul Seder plate that you use. Can you just for our listeners who are unfamiliar, can you explain what a Seder plate is and how you've designed your kosher soul Seder plate? Um, a Seder plate is the central ritual object on Passover. Mm-hmm. It tells a story through 
five to six specific ingredients. So one of which is the hard boiled egg, which symbolizes the spring and the lamb shank, which symbolizes the simple sacrifices and haroset, which is a mixture of fruit, nuts, and spice. Mm. Um, and so all these symbols really are part of telling the past serpent story. So this is a symbol of, of, of liberation, Exodus resistance. And so for me, mine has okra, symbolizes mm-hmm. African heritage. There's the chicken bone instead of the lamb's shank bone because of the relationship between chicken and African Atlantic spiritualities. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can keep going. I mean, you could put Bami on there if you're Jamaican. You could put Kalu on there. Collard greens are my maror. You could put Kalu if you want to. Salt water um, in both traditions here at Saltwater, the tears of the, the Israelites, adherence to the tears of the enslaved, but also the waters of the Middle Passage. Yeah. But the idea here is that people could be able to see themselves in this very universal narrative. It is meant yeah. to be shared by all people who find themselves oppressed, marginalized, and exiled. Yeah. One of the oldest synagogues in the Western Hemisphere is in Barbados. Mm-hmm. It was built in the 1650s by Sephardic Jews who were escaping Portuguese persecution in Brazil. And they brought their expertise and sugar to Barbados, which means they made a living enslaving my ancestors. Mm-hmm. And you talk about this like painful, complicated history of Black Jewish relationships in your book. For people who want to learn about this food and cook this food, but don't want to paper over that, frankly, terrible history, what do you say to them? It's a lot of twists and turns and complications. Mm -hmm. There's also an incredible book called Once We Were Slaves Mm -hmm. by a Jewish scholar that talks about (laughs) basically people who were formerly enslaved in Barbados, Mm -hmm. who were the children of their masters mm-hmm. who were liberated and sent to New York and became basically the patriarchs and matriarchs of one of New York's prominent Jewish families. Mm-hmm. They were mixed blood people of African descent. There were Black people who were enslaved, who were Jewish. We still see Black people with names like Levy and Cohen. Mm-hmm. But there were multiple rabbis that lost their jobs and ran out of town because they said slavery was wrong. Mm-hmm. In the, some of the same spaces that you know, had a generation before had supported the slave trade through the membership, like Toro Synagogue in Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. A generation later, these same spaces were being used to harbor people who were running away from enslavement. Mm -hmm. It's a very complex narrative, especially coming from a people where we have the saying, now we were slaves next year, may we be free. But Mm -hmm. I also say this, Judaism is interesting in that among all of these faith traditions, there's also the one that makes room for things that are problematic. Mm-hmm. In Judaism, we say we wrestle with God. Do we choose to make the world a better place? Do we choose to commit acts of tikkun olam or world repair? That's mm-hmm. what's on us. And so I, I really value that. So you've talked about how food alone won't save us. Mm-mm. You know, just because someone likes Black Southern food doesn't mean that they respect the people making the food. It needs to be deeper. Uh, you know, it's because they want everything to be white. That means they want no black pepper in their food. Right. Uh, <laughs> dude, look, you need some garlic powder, some lorries. You need some adobo. <laughs> all of it. <laughs> all of it. All of it. Some hot sauce. I mean, all of it. All of it. So on the flip side, how can people connect to history to have that deeper experience when they cook the food of certain cultures? 
the way in which so many people they don't understand the issue of appropriation. They go, well, if, I, if, mm-hmm. I, if I'm eating your food, it means I'm crediting you. You ain't doing nothing for me unless you write a reparations check. <laughs> so the, yeah. the check is already in the mail, certified, mm-hmm. signed, sealed, delivered, like Stephen Wonder on, on Obama's election night. It ain't, it ain't going nowhere. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about actual, real conversation. Those conversations, those allyships, that hard work that led to aspects of our liberation and ongoing liberation mm-hmm. now. We're built on people saying, hey, I want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. It's not just, you know, big men and big women in big places that make great pronouncements and lead the people. It's everyday people like you and me who decide to break down those walls and say, all right, I'm tired of feeling so isolated and vulnerable. We have mm-hmm. to work together as a community. And it doesn't always work. We know it doesn't always work. But by God, we live in a better world because somebody made that decision to say, let's talk, let's share some bread, and let's work through our issues. Yeah. You know, something that resonates with you is legacy. Um, What kind of food legacy do you hope to leave behind? I I guess I want to leave behind a conversation. You know, I would would love to do a folk school. Folk schools taught everything from nonviolent resistance to some of the folk culture and storytelling and music. And I want to do the same for food and growing things and and using those things as a means of resistance. Well, how would we use these things as means of resistance? I mean, the very fact that you and I said cuckoo and fungi means that somebody in heaven is laughing. Yeah. Because the book <laughs> didn't get all of it. The resistance is real. We're living it. Mm-hmm. We're also telling our stories on our own terms. That's resistance. Mm-hmm. When we make our food, we, we tell the story of how the food got there. We're repeating our history. Being able to know your own history and tell your own story and pass it on to the next generation, but also affirm that this is who you are, this is who I am, and this is the ground mm-hmm. on which we stand and the shoulders we stand on. Yeah. That's where it starts. Now, where it goes to is decolonizing the diet. Yeah. But we should never take for granted our storytelling, our resistance against amnesia. Because mm. mm-hmm. once you know that you ain't got no excuse. Once you know that it doesn't have to be this way, once you know that it could have gone down a whole different way, yeah, there's a different kind of anger that comes from that, a different kind of spirit of, okay, I'm ready, I'm, I'm ready to fight now. Thank you so much, Michael. It was really great talking to you. Thank you, my sister. I appreciate you. Thanks again to Michael W. Twitty. His new book, Kosher Soul, is out now. Up next... Who said that? With my group chat. Stick around. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be like that at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. 
And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. We're back, and I'm here with Alana Casanova-Burgess. She's a producer and the host of La Brega from WNYC's and Futuro Studios. Hello, hello. And Rebecca Ibarra, host and producer of The Refresh from Insider. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Alana. And I'm so excited because not only are these women fantastic journalists and radio makers, they're also two of my closest friends. It's the group chat come to life. Whenever I feel like I haven't gotten enough attention in my life, I will open up the group chat and just start making a voice memo. And then you guys pay attention to me and it's great. Listeners, the record is eight minutes. Uh, no, uh, no, 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 no. Ten. Memo? Ten. Ten. It's ten. Oh. We've had a ten minute Never voice mind. memo. I stand corrected. Uh, <laughs> and it and I believe it was from me. Yep. I think that's accurate. That's accurate. <laughs> it was delightful. Nobody wants to hear about this. <laughs> no one wants to hear about this. But but okay. We're super close. We're buddies. We're chismosas. But are you two willing to set all that aside and compete? Absolutely. Bring it. So we're here to play a game called Who Said That? Okay, here are the rules. I'll share a quote you might have heard in the news this week, and you have to guess who said that or what it's about. There are no buzzers. Just yell out the answer. There are zero prizes. Just bragging rights and the title of queen of the group chat. What? Please be aware I will clown you if you get zero points. (laughs) Sorry, you didn't tell me that before I said yes. You're hearing it now. Okay, for this one, you can tell me who said this or who it's about. Got it. Blank is the son I've never had. He's a charming boy who's finding his way. What? It sounds like something Matt Gates would say in a very creepy way, but it's probably not Matt Gates. No, it's not Matt Gates. <laughs> <laughs> um, the person who said this is a very close personal friend to Snoop Dogg. Oh, oh Martha. Martha. Stewart. Alana, you get it. Okay. Yes. Yes. So that was Martha Stewart. Apparently, last Friday, the Daily Mail asked her if she was going to be Pete Davidson's new girlfriend because there was a picture of them floating around holding hands at the White House Correspondence Dinner. Oh, my God. Amazing. And she basically said she finds him delightful. So in my book, she didn't deny that she is not dating Pete Davidson. He's going to have such good meals. I'm jealous. This is like a meme. Well, I think, well, Pete Davidson is definitely a meme boyfriend at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's just dating all these amazing women. And I mean, obviously, why wouldn't Martha Stewart snatch him up? um, She can. She will. She has. Maybe. You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So number two. Okay, you have to tell me who said this one, all right? Okay, okay. No, you can't just let it flow. The crew is... You know, you're not on your own in a hotel room. You're being hounded by a bunch of blokes carrying things. I don't know who the actor was, but maybe he had an intimacy coordinator accidentally at home. (laughs) I need a hint. 
I'm terrible at this game. A major clue is the fact that this person said blokes. Yeah, yeah, So this yeah. is a British person. I'll give you a hint. She's a dame. Dame Judy Dench? No. Nope. Helen Mirren? <laughs> I'll give you one more hint. She played a nurse, a homeless woman, and an angel in an HBO miniseries. Oh, man. Rebecca, I really thought you would get this. Angels in America. I know. I, I know. But I'm completely blanking on her name. Sorry, Rebecca. It's Emma Thompson. <laughs> Oh, my God. I love Rebecca. You were just like, I know it. I just. Yeah. I was picturing her haircut, you know, that short blonde bob. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's Emma Thompson. She was responding to actor Sean Beam, who last week said that having intimacy coordinators spoil the spontaneity of scripted sex scenes. Does he know the option? There's an option to just not say anything. (laughs) There is an option to not just say anything. Yeah. I did read that quote last week, and it was so distressing to think about him like, letting it flow in a work environment because they're workers, not lovers. He's like, listen, let's just wing it. <laughs> who knows Who knows what'll happen? That's part of the excitement. Like, no, <laughs> no. All right. Okay, so this is a two-parter. It's worth two points. First, someone needs to fill in the blank and then and tell me who said it. It does like an algebra question. After much thought, we're saddened to share that we have separated and will begin the process of divorcing. To the Blank family and Netflix, thank you for this unforgettable oh my opportunity God. and support. Love is blind. Love is blind, and who's talking? Oh, the two people. I didn't. I literally just put this in the group chat. <laughs> I know this yes. is why this is hilarious. <laughs> I never know the names of the couple of Love, Love is Blind, but she is oh adorable. God. She's, she's pint-sized and he's mega she's tall. So Honestly, teeny. she's better than him. Oh, right. <laughs> oh my God. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So um, Alana gets one point. I get zero. It's fine. You don't want, you don't want to. Oh, g- no. I 100% don't know their names. You don't. <laughs> Just okay, so this. yes, we're talking about, <laughs> I know this was just in the group chat. I'm so disappointed in you too. <laughs> Before this, I Googled gossip to be ready for this segment. You Googled gossip? <laughs> I don't know if anyone noticed, but I didn't study. So. <laughs> All right. That's Ayanna McNeely announcing that she and Jarrett Jones are getting divorced. The two got together through Netflix's show, Love is Blind. I'm a little bummed because I was rooting for them. Really? I thought they were a cute couple. No, I was just rooting for her. Just for her. I was just rooting for her. No (laughs) offense to Jarrett. Well, in the sense that I was rooting for her and she wanted, seemed to want Jarrett, then yes. So I'm a little bummed, but Mm -hmm. you know, what do you expect? These things happen. Par for the course. Mm -hmm. Don't I know it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Alana, you won. Yes. You know what? Losing has never felt so delightful. So I'm going to go ahead and pat myself in the back for that as well. <laughs> thank you guys so much for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tracy. Oh, uh, thank you. You've been so great on this show. Thanks, Alana. This episode was produced by Barton Girdwood, Andrea Gutierrez, Liam McBain, and Jessica Mendoza. Our intern is Ejianeta Aragon. And I want to pause for a moment to shout out Ejianeta. This is their last week with us as an intern. Ejianeta, you have been a vital member of our team, and we will really, really miss you. Engineering support came from Andy Huther and Kwesi Lee. We had fact-checking help from Sarah Knight. Our supervising editor is Jessica Placzek. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. And Anya Grunman is NPR's Senior Vice President of Programming. And listeners, this is my last week as your guest host. 
Hosting this show has been a highlight in my professional life. This team is amazing, and I loved hanging out with all of you these last three weeks. But I leave you in good hands. Joining the show in the coming weeks are two co-hosts you're already familiar with, Elise Hugh, who last hosted the show in June, and Andrea Gutierrez, one of the producers of It's Been a Minute. Thank you all for listening. I'm Tracy Hunt. Take care. NPR's editorial independence and integrity is non-negotiable. It's the reason why so many listen to 1A's Friday News Roundup. You'll get analysis and insight from the world's best correspondents. Listen to 1A's Friday News Roundup, only from NPR. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR.